Well, you can turn with me your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 25. As we continue our incarnational series that focused in on the barren ladies of the Old Testament, driving to Elizabeth and then eventually the Virgin Mary, as God brings about wonderful miracles in times of great despair, great hope in times of tribulation. But we are going to look at the second barren lady in scripture today, and that's Rebecca. Tonight, we're going to look at Psalm 23. I think, again, with everything going on, I just didn't have the headspace to talk about bond servants and masters. So uh, tonight, we're going to look at Psalm 23 in our evening service. But this morning, we're going to look at Genesis 25, verses 19 through 34. So we'll begin reading Genesis 25, verse 19. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian, of Padan Aram, sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? She went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two bodies shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red. It was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took a hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter and a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. Well, Rebecca loved Jacob. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I'm about to die, so what is this birthright to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Amen. Well, let's pray. Our great God, we are thankful again that you speak to your people in various trials and tribulations, various circumstances. We're thankful, O oh God, that we, your people, can come and cling to your promises. We're thankful for the promise you gave to Abraham, the promise you give to Isaac, and the promise you give to Jacob as well. We're thankful that fulfillment is found in Jesus Christ, and we're thankful for the promise you've promised to never leave us nor forsake us. So we pray, O oh God, as we have to put our faith to the test, as you put our faith to the test, that we would trust in you at this time, O oh God, and see your amazing mercy, amazing grace, your, your sustenance, your protection. We know, God, you work all things for your will. We know, God, that there is no uh, pointless hardship in this world. We know, God, all things are working for the good of your people and for your glory. So help us to remember these things. Help us to remember and be reminded of your grace and your predestinating grace, how you chose a people before the foundation of the world, not because we were good, not because there's anything great within us, but because of your great and abounding mercy. And we're thankful that we see your abounding mercy in Christ, who came, lived, died, and rose again. And we do pray, O oh God, that you would be pleased to use uh, this time to call forth sinners out of darkness, call forth your elect, and we pray, O oh God, that you would be pleased to save your people at this time. So we pray, O oh God, you speak to your people, save your people, 
In all, all things, O oh God, we pray that we, your people, would glorify you. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, as I said, we're focusing today on our series, The Barren and the Virgin. Last time we saw Sarah's barrenness or Sarai's barrenness. We see God give the promise to Abraham that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But there were big time problems put in the way of that. There was the problem of the, of the fact that she was barren. That was the biggest uh, obstacle in the way of God's promises. But God in his mercy gave them a son, gave them Isaac. And so now we transition in the flow of the book of Genesis really to focus in on Isaac, to focus in on the, the, the second patriarch. But in reality, as we focus in on Isaac, it focuses in primarily on Jacob. Abraham has died or Abraham is, uh, Abraham has passed on. And uh, uh, Isaac is that supernatural seed. God was faithful and good to him. And as we move to Isaac, the patriarch, key themes remain, seed and land. But there's a heightened sense of challenge with, 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 uh, with Isaac when we look at Jacob and Esau. Before the conflict was, yes, between brothers, between Abraham, or sorry, between Isaac and Ishmael. But as we move to Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau, the conflict becomes between actual full-blood brothers. There's a conflict between families, conflict within the families, between nations. As we know the flow of the Bible, and as we see even in Genesis 3.15, the the, the separation or distinction between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, you know, this isn't really that uh, surprising for us. Isaac was of the seed of the woman, Ishmael the seed of the serpent. But again, that tension is further heightened with these blood brothers, with this sibling rivalry. There is uh, Jacob is of the seed of the woman, and Esau is of the seed of the serpent. And what's going to happen? What happens even in this text? God goes against human convention to bring about his purposes for his own glory. And again, it's hard for the human mind. It's hard for the natural mind to understand these things. But it's not hard for God to create these things and to do these things and to bring about his plan. Because we know theologically why God is doing this. It's for his glory and the salvation of his people. It shows his sovereign election that we see in Malachi chapter 1, see in Romans 9, that has its basis here with Jacob and Esau. So God will further protect his covenant people, but it will come through great conflict within the family. And so I think we see in these verses, 19 through 34 of chapter 25, well, God does answer the prayers of Isaac and Rebekah. His grace of election goes against human convention. His plans go against what we think ought to be done. And his plans are far greater than our plans. And we see this with these two ones, with the twins. And we'll look at this idea of God's, Sovereignty, God's election over human convention under two headings this morning. First of all, the birth of the twins in verses 19 through 26. And secondly, we'll see the conflict between the twins in verses 27 through 34. So the birth of the twins, verses 19 through 26, and the conflict between the twins in verses 27 through 34. So let's first look at the birth of the twins in verses 19 through 26. Notice we see the genealogy, again, setting the stage for what's about to happen. And again, genealogies have a specific purpose in Genesis. It gives us the main, I guess, the main figure. It points us forward to uh, who we're going to speak of. It gives us the background of the main character in the narrative. So really, even the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, they get their own genealogies. We saw the line of Terah. That's where Abraham comes out of. We see then in 25, verse 12, we see the genealogy of Ishmael. Esau will get his genealogy as well. 
before we end with the genealogy of Jacob, but today it starts the genealogy of Isaac. It's an extended genealogy that focuses in on Isaac's children from chapters 25 through 35. Abraham is the father. It says that. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. And we send, we, maybe not we, but the Bible spends, we did uh, several years ago, look at Genesis 11 through 25. We see God's promises throughout as he protects the promised seed, as he protects the patriarch, as he protects his plan throughout. So Abraham is the father. He's 100 years old when he has Isaac. It takes 24, 25 years before the promises are actually fulfilled with God giving Abraham the supernatural seed in whom all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So it's Isaac. He's going to focus in, it's, even though it's the patriarch is Isaac, they focus in on Jacob. But again, we're getting the family background. And then verse 20 gives us some more information about Isaac and his wife. Isaac was 40 years old. Now again, age is important here. Much like Abraham was 75 years old in Genesis 12, the fact that Isaac is 40 is going to play an important role, but we'll get to that when we get to verse 26. So he's 40 when he marries Rebecca, marries her, I guess, uh, he marries her at 40 years old. Then we also get her family background as well. He took Rebecca as wife, the daughter of Bethuel the Syrian, of Padanaram, the sister of Laban the Syrian. So Drake draws back, calls us to look back to Genesis 24, that covenant romance that happened with God and his providence. I mean, as you read Genesis 4, you see God leading and guiding God's providence throughout as he makes it possible for uh, Eleazar to find this one, to find Rebecca for Isaac. Remember, Abraham did not want a wife for Isaac from the Canaanites. Instead, he wanted one of his kin. So they go back to Padanaram in Syria. Uh, Last time we looked at how the, the family of Terah traveled to Haran. They, so he's probably going back, or that's where he went back to, to make sure he got, uh, that's where Eleazar went to, to get a wife for Isaac. So he gets the wife. She's a Syrian, Padanaram, not a Canaanite. And it says she's the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Foreshadowing the conflict that Jacob is going to have with uh, Laban in the future. Foreshadow as he goes away, as Jacob goes away from the promised land, and has to deal with his conniving uh, uncle later on in Genesis. So that's the genealogy. It's about Isaac. He's 40. This is his wife, where she's from, setting the stage for what Jacob will have to deal with. Then we come to her plight in verses 21 and 22. We come to her barrenness. Now it says, Isaac, verse 20, was, oh, sorry, verse 21. Now, Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Just like Sarah was barren in 1127. Same word. She's unable to have children at this time, and it is difficult for the family. One thing that's so different at this time between Isaac and Abraham is we see the faith that Isaac has at this point. Abraham and Sarah used Hagar. There's no Hagar 2.0 here. Here we see Isaac going to his God in faith and asking him and pleading with him and, may, and, and relying upon God uh, with respect to what's happening with his wife. God, is this not the plan? Is this not the promise that in, my, in me or in, in, our, in Abraham, in my father, all the families of the earth shall be blessed? Does that not that mean that in me all the families of the earth shall be blessed? And in fact, God gives Isaac that affirmation in Genesis 26. Right now, he doesn't have that. Right now, he's pleading. Right now, he's crying out. Right now, he is 
asking God to help his wife. Interesting, Hannah pleads in 1 Samuel 7. We'll talk about Hannah at some point. But here Isaac, the, the husband, he pleads and intercedes for his wife. It shows his faith, shows his trust. He has his flaws, and they're going to come out later on. And they do come out later on. And just as an aside, just because someone gets older doesn't necessarily mean they get wiser or more godly. Hopefully that's the case, but it is not always true. Sometimes faith wanes as one gets older. Hopefully that's not the case as we grow in our faith as well. Help us, we ask God to help us grow in our faith. And Isaac has his issues later on. And so he pleads. He's asking. And then perhaps even as he asked and we asked, well, what about the promises of Abraham? How is this going to come about? I think his pleading, his crying out, gives us an important lesson for us even in our day and age as well. He knows the promises. He knows God has given him this affirmation, this assurance that God will be faithful. But also notice as well that perhaps he's basing his pleading on those promises. The, the, the basis for our crying out to God is, for, is based on what God has said in his word. You see, he goes to God. He prays to God. Have you not said, God? Have you not promised? Why are these things not coming to pass? The basis for our prayer and pleading with God is based on his promises. That's the implication that we can see. He still prays. He still pleads. And even for God's people, when we pray, when we plead, it's based on what God has said in his word. Even when things are confusing, even when things don't make sense, even when things perhaps uh, are not going the way we want. We have the promises of God to cling to when we go to his word. And in reality, brethren, prayer becomes a means of grace when we pray God's word back to him. Yes, we pray subjectively. Yes, we are the ones who are praying, but we must pray God's words back to him. And so it's important for us to say, God, here are your promises in your word when we pray. So this is perhaps the implication. Isaac is basing his prayers and pleading on behalf uh, based on the promises God has given. So he pleads, he intercedes, he asks the Lord, he asks Yahweh for his wife because she was in this situation. And then notice verse 21, and the Lord granted his plea. A biblically quick answer when you consider what happened with Sarah and Abraham. It was 11 through 25 or 11 through 21 before it's actually fulfilled, before it actually comes to pass. But here we see it's biblically quick. Boom. All of a sudden, Rebecca, his wife, conceived all of a sudden she has she uh, she's able to uh she yeah she conceived she has a child in the womb so god provides quickly the lord granted the plea rebecca his wife conceived but the, there are still problems and still issues but the children struggled together with in her pregnancy is really really painful according to what my dear wife has said i have no <laughs> idea what that's like but i've observed it seemed quite painful but what's interesting at this time, they didn't have the modern luxuries that you and I have. Things are happening within Rebecca. Things are, things are going on. There's a struggle, but the children, verse 22, struggled together within her. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. She doesn't know at this point that she has twins, but there's a big epic battle going on in her womb. There's a big, massive struggle happening at this time. Again, there's no modern ultrasounds that they can use to go see What's happening in the womb? So she has to go and inquire of the Lord God Almighty. And so she does. She goes. She Why am I like this? So she goes. And right away again, perhaps seeing her husband's example, she goes to her God in faith. So she went to inquire 
of the Lord. And thankfully, God answers that prayer. God says, God speaks to her. This is interesting, isn't it? Because Abraham was the one primarily spoken to with his situation. But here God speaks to Rebecca. Here God condescends to her, and God reveals what's going on in her womb. So he says, the nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So the brotherly love starts in the womb. There is twin fighting happening. And the language here where it says there's this struggle going on in verse 22, all together with her, that struggle that's happening, the struggle there refers to the idea of basically punching each other. That's what's going on in the womb. They're having this epic fight with one another. Now, perhaps, you know, maybe she did see a big fist come up before it throws down against the brother. Maybe she saw one brother got smacked in the face and she saw the face, you know, the face print coming through the womb as well. Who knows? But there's this epic battle that is going on within the womb. So, yeah, why am I like this? What is going on? And God reveals that it is two nations. Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Typically, at that time, the older one was the one who received the birthright, the one who received the blessing, the one who would take over the clan, the one who would have the double portion, and that's typical human convention. So she's probably hearing all these things. Okay, two nations, two peoples, one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. But that last part, the older shall serve the younger, perhaps would have been puzzling. What do you mean the older shall serve the younger? Because in the context of that time, the older, the younger served the older. The firstborn had these certain rights, but here God, even before these ones are born, is already electing who he wants before they even come out of the womb. He's already going against human convention even before they come forth and they are, they are born. And interesting, this, uh, this, uh, this, uh, this prophecy that God gives, God speaking to Rebecca, then colors the rest of Genesis 25 through 35. It's much like Genesis 12, 1 through 3, is the main idea that colors the rest of Genesis 11 through 25. The same thing is true here with verse 23. What happens in the end and what's going to happen, we know this very idea. The younger, uh, the older does serve the younger. And even has further fulfillment, even though Esau is a mighty one, according to stature, Edom shall be taken out by David in 2 Samuel chapter 8. From now on, he gives the, the, the seed promise, two nations, two peoples, one will be mightier, and the older shall serve the younger. And perhaps Rebecca, or, uh, Rebecca goes away and goes, what in the world does this mean? And then, after she gets the prophecy, God... Uh, her uh, improvidence, her, 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 her pregnancy comes to an end, verse 24. So when her days were fulfilled, that means her pregnancy is coming to an end. For her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. She did actually have two children within her. She had two little ones wrestling and fighting and grappling with one another. So the first one comes out, the firstborn. The first came out all red or hairy. He came out all burly looking. He probably had a beard as soon as he came out. And he was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. The meaning, and that's the meaning of Esau. He's red or he is hairy. That he is one who is, you know, you know, had to shave when he was four. You know, I learned to shave when I was 14. He probably shaved much sooner than that. 
So he's Burley, he's Harry, even the name Esau means Harry. You know, a lot of people in, modern, in our modern context like the sound of certain names, and perhaps that would bode well for a guy like Esau. What does your name mean? Harry. Okay, thanks a lot for that, Mom and Dad. But in any case, he's called Harry. So Esau comes out. He's burly. Verse 26, after his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. One who grasped, one who strived, one who takes the heel. You know, there's this fight going on. And perhaps Esau got out first, but Jacob's right behind him. And it could carry the idea of the imagery. Perhaps when mom calls, you know, two siblings are playing, and mom says, you know, time for dinner. And the, one of them wants to, they, they race, they race you there, and one grabs the heel, pulls them down, so the other one falls, and the, for the other one, he's able to get ahead. That's what Jacob's trying to do. He's trying to pull, he's trying to reach, he's trying to make it so that he will, shall be first. So they continue their... They're, 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 they're quarreling, they're war, even when they come out of the womb. So striving, fighting, these ones are born, even in striving and fighting, Esau and Jacob. But then we get this last sentence in verse 26. Isaac was, Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. They got married at 40. And he, she, he is 60 when they actually have the kids. Even though it was a biblically quick answer in verse 22, in verse 21, here we see that it actually took a long time. It was a, it was a faith-testing delay that happened for Rebecca, happened for Isaac. It took 20 years. It took years of praying and interceding uh, for Rebecca before God finally answered their plea. Because God is the one who is sovereign in all things, and we must remember that when we pray to him. And we must remember that with respect to salvation as well. And perhaps you knew I was going to go there with this because of where this verse is quoted or where this story is quoted. I think this section highlights the absolute sovereignty of God when it comes to salvation. Before these ones were born, before anything could happen, God goes against natural human convention before they could even do anything and this language this uh, this section is quoted in romans chapter 9 with malachi 1 in malachi's day malachi was the last prophet before uh before uh the, john the baptist comes on the scene and in malachi's day the people were like god do you love us or not they were questioning whether or not god loved them and that's where the prophecy or where god says jacob i love Esau, i hate it he says i love you jacob i love you israel i chose you but I hated Esau. I hated him. That's hard for our modern delicate sensitivities. But God does say, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. And we see this here as well in Genesis 25. But Romans 9 brings these two texts together. You can't explain away Romans 9 with just saying it's nations. It is true. I do think to some degree it does refer to nations. But what he's referring to is the difference between ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel. And Paul is even answering the question, Paul, if all these things are true about the gospel, if all these things are true about justification by faith, why is it that some Jews don't believe? And he goes on to say the reason some Jews do not believe is because they are not all Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. Some are the children of the promise and some are the children of the flesh. And it's based on faith in God. And even quotes 
uh, uh, Genesis 18, for this is the word of promise, verse 9 of Romans 9. At this time I shall come and Sarah shall have a son. And then verse 10, not only this, but when Rebekah has also conceived one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, isn't it great when later writers interpret what's going on in older passages for us very clearly? God has done any good or evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It's like Paul's anticipating someone, uh, an Armenian, arguing that God just looked down the corridors of time to see what they would do. That's not what the Bible says, and that's not what Paul says here. Very clearly, before they were born, nor have done any good, and even said that his purpose election might stand, not of works. If you believe that God looked down the corridor of time and saw who would do good, the decisive uh, key focus, the decisive action in salvation is no longer on God, but it's on man's works. For Romans 9, Genesis 25, Malachi 1, and myriads of other places in Scripture teach us that God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. God is the one who saved his people. And it, there is going to be a great multitude that no man can number. And even it says with Romans 9, before they did anything good, and as I'm going to highlight in just a second, Jacob did not really do a lot of things good. God still was good and merciful, and he saved a wretched people before the foundation of the world. God is the one who sovereignly saves and works. It's monergism. It's one way. God is the one who changes hearts, and he has chosen a people before the foundation of the world. Now, that doesn't mean we don't pray. It doesn't mean we don't plead to our God. It doesn't mean we don't evangelize. But it means that we trust God's word, that there is a great multitude that no man can number when it comes to salvation. And as well, in our various Christian walk and the various circumstances we are in, God is sovereign over all of those things. Just because God doesn't answer our prayers right away, it doesn't mean he doesn't hear. It doesn't mean he's not paying attention. It doesn't mean he doesn't, isn't care, doesn't care for his people. And a clear example, again, is with Rebecca and Isaac. Isaac pleaded for 20 years before God answered those promises. And I think God's people again and again can come back to his word and be reminded of that very reality. Whether it's providence in our life or whether it's salvation, God shall save. And as well, when we think about loved ones, when we think about friends and family, it is the case that God, that it could be the case now that they perhaps names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And we can be assured of those things if they are, that God shall save them. But God will do it in his timing. God saves souls in his timing. While there's still breath, there's still hope, we can pray to our God, and he answers, he answers prayers according to his will. We can be assured that all his elect shall be saved. And that's why we pray for loved ones, hoping that they are, their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's difficult and hard all, all of us, I think, have many loved ones and friends and family that do not know God. We share the truth of them. God works in his sovereign will. But if they are elect and God is waiting to save them, we can, and his timing, we can be assured of that very reality. It's liberating that God saves, we cannot. God changes and God works. God is absolutely sovereign when it comes to salvation and all, overall life as well.
So that's the birth of the twins. Let's then look secondly and finally at the conflict between the twins in verses 27 uh, to 34. Notice we see the parents play favorites in verses 27 and 28. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skilled hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. Two very different brothers, two very different siblings. Esau, the wild man, hunter, strapping, he probably bench 500 pounds when he was eight. He could fight a lion and a bear when he was seven. You know, he was a typical wild man, you know, strapping. You know, we kind of think of the stereotypes, big people, dumb, dumb minds, big muscles, but not very smart. Yeah, Esau kind of fits that stereotype. He's a big ogre. He's a big buffoon. And we certainly see that uh, with respect to his appetites and desires uh, to sell the birthright. I should say you have to have some skill and some brain to be able to hunt. But as far as some of the more civilized things in life, he wasn't so sharp in those areas. But Jacob, on the other hand, knew he couldn't take Esau in a wrestling match or an arm wrestle or a fight. He knew he'd have to take Esau in another way. Jacob was, as it says, Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. Now, I should say what this means is he, went, he was a civilized man, but it doesn't mean he's a dainty dude. I think sometimes we think civilized man is a dainty kind of guy who doesn't have some muscle. Maybe he's got some biceps, but not as big as Esau's biceps because he did care for the herds. Hurt. He did take care of the flock. He did take, take care of the sheep. And we certainly see his abilities and God working through those abilities later on in the book of Genesis. So he, he wasn't as strong as Esau. He's much more sophisticated, though doesn't mean he was a complete you know skinny little guy but he perhaps but he had more brains than brawn and he used that brains more than his brawn and then we see verse 28 the parents play favorites now isaac loved esau because he ate of his game but jacob loved rebecca isaac loved the game of esau that plays out later in 27 and 28 here rebecca loved jacob that plays out in 27 and 28 Let's just say, parents, it's usually not a good idea to show favorite. Let's be honest, perhaps sometimes you've already done that. But, you know, it's not always good to do that. It becomes a real bad family, dysfunctional family within the Isaac family. Uh, but there's favoritism. That sets the stage for later on in 27 and 28. So, that, so we see the favorites, and then we see the battle for the birthright. And again, it's not through might. And it's not through brawn, it's through brains. Jacob, verse 29, cooks some stew. Doesn't explain why. He's probably hungry and needs some food. Esau comes in from the field and he was weary. He was tired. He was, you know, after a long day, he needed some grub. And so Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. That same red stew, for I am weak. Perhaps there's a bit of a hyperbole going on here. It could carry the idea that he's going to say, I'm about to die. It could be the case that he's just like, I'm famished. I'm about to go. I actually, uh, uh, um, it could be just hyperbole. He didn't actually need it at that time, but he really wanted it. Um, he's going to double down and say, I'm going to die. Just give it to me. Uh, I'll get to that in verse 32. But at this point, he's tired. He's weary. And then we see the name of the country that shall be based on his namesake, Edom. He was red. Edom means red. Again, Edom will be taken out eventually in 2 Samuel 8 by David. So he's hungry. He's tired. He's weary. He doesn't. And, uh, so he's weak at this point. 
So Jacob, rather than use his, bra- his brawn, he uses his brain. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. He's cool and calculated. I think he was waiting and biding his time before he actually, you know, pounced on his opportunity. Sometimes you don't always need brute force. Sometimes you just need a little bit of fear. Just ask the Canadian government about that. Sometimes you just need a little bit of, you know, let's scare some people into submission. And so he's doing, he's using his, he's not using brute force to bring about these plans. So rather than be a kind brother and say, of course, Esau, you should have some of this. He uses this for his own gain. Doesn't offer it to him. Doesn't care for him. Doesn't, it's rather alienates him. And eventually there will be reconciliation, but there's going to be a lot of rivalry and infighting before that happens. It says, sell me your birthright. The birthright was important for the firstborn. It's the inheritance rights, two portions of the inheritance, and you would be the leader of the clan when the family passes on. Later on, this is further uh, uh, enhanced. It's explained with the blessing in 27. But right now, he's highlighting, okay, just sell me your birthright at this time. And Esau, verse 32, and he said, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? He's probably over-exaggerating. He's probably being a bit of a big baby. Sometimes big men can be the biggest babies of all when they're hungry. And so he says, well, I'm about to die. Just give me it. What does it even mean? He thinks more with his gut than he does with his uh, faith. He thinks more with his uh, appetite than he does with long-term blessings. He's more concerned with satisfying his food cravings than the blessings given by God. And we start to see the initial fulfillment of those prophecies that are the prophecy that God gave to Rebecca. We're already seeing that. The, 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 the older shall serve the younger. He's at the beck and call of the younger at this point. So he thinks with his gut, fulfillment comes, and so he said, and then swear, verse 33, then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. So Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils, then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. He secures the blessing. He secures the birthright. Esau decides to eat. The stew of lentils goes his way. Transaction's been sworn. And then we see, thus Esau despised the birthright. That is, he's trampling on the blessings of Yahweh. He's trampling on the promises of Yahweh. Now, we know from the prophecy, the older shall serve the younger. But technically, at this point, humanly speaking, he had the right to those things. But he disdains it. He goes away from it. He rather would have food than lifelong blessing with God. I think that's important for us to see this year when we even when we consider election and reprobation. There are the profane reprobates, those whom God has destined to eternal reprobation, eternal damnation, and the elect God who in his mercy has saved sinners according to his predestined plan. And I think we see here an example of Esau who was a reprobate, who was one who did not care even about the things of God. It's important for us to see that. The reprobate are not going knocking on heaven's door and say, God, let me in. That's not what they're doing. They hate God. They trample on the things of God. Esau tramples on the the patriarchal blessing that God has given, the, the, the patriarchal blessing that God has granted. 
and he would rather have lentils, he'd rather have stew than the promises of God. The reprobate, I'm sorry to say, I'm not sorry to say, it's the word of God and it's true. I'm sorry if it hurts your feelings. I'm not even sorry if it hurts your feelings. The reprobate are truly reprehensible because of their selfish sinfulness before God. There is no one righteous, no, not one, according to the Bible. There is no one who does good, according to the Bible, according to Romans 3, consolidates a bunch of texts together. There is no one righteous. We must recognize that. God in his justice, because of our sin against that eternal, perfect God, is deserving of eternal, perfect punishment. We must recognize that and see that. Man is not looking for God. Man hates God, despises God, and tramples on the things of God. That's why we need salvation to come from God. And brethren, when we consider the elect, as with Jacob as the example at this point, doesn't it show how gracious God is to save a cruel people? Brethren, Jacob is being very cruel to his brother. Jacob is going to do very terrible things later on in 27 and 28. Yes, he's going to get the blessing. But he doesn't always do it in the, mo the great, most gracious way. He doesn't always do it in the most, dare we say, holy way. Yet God understands the messiness of life, and God still brings about the promises and blessings to give to Jacob. But, boy, he doesn't do a good thing. He dupes his dad. He takes things from his brother. When you consider what he has done and consider who he is and consider he is the deceiver, he is no saint. And that's very clear in 26, 27, and 28. And one thing I think this text ought to do for us is to consider Romans 9 and you know, to consider it in light or Romans 9 in light of these things. And I think what this text does for us is it gives us Romans 9, uh, gives us uh, gives Romans 9 more meaning for us. When we consider the fact that God saved Jacob, that God chose Jacob, that God elected Jacob, and remember when we think about our own perhaps remaining corruption, struggles with sin, perhaps when we think about our own life and what we have done, how is it and why is it that God would save wretches like you and I? I think when we consider Genesis 25, yes, it shows you know, Esau's disdain. And certainly Esau you know, is an example of a profane man, a worldly man. In Hebrews chapter 12, he preferred a morsel of food versus the blessings of God. But I think it magnifies God's grace all the more. When we see how cruel Jacob is, how wretched we are and once were, and, and, and even how wretched we are even with our remaining corruption, and when we consider our former ways before we were saved, it shows God's mercy. And it gives Romans 9 so much more depth and value and meaning when we consider God's grace to cruel, elect people. And we see that magnified through the line of Jacob, through Jacob would, or uh, yeah, through Jacob would come the line of the tribe of Judah, who would come through Judah, God, his son Judah, this, this, this true covenant keeper, this one who was not cruel, this one who, did, uh, who kept the law of God, kept the covenant, kept all that we could not do. And because of this Christ, he saves reprehensible people like you and I, terrible people like you and I. Even terrible people in our modern context today, brethren, can still be saved by the mighty hand of God. Even terrorists can be saved. Even tyrants can be saved. Even homosexuals can be saved. 
Even abortionists and ones who've committed abortion can be saved. There is forgiveness in Christ. There's forgiveness in this one. What other religion can say that? What other religion can say, confess your sins to me and you shall find mercy. And if you're an unbeliever listening today or here today, we recognize that there is great salvation in this Christ, in this Lord, in this one. And consider your ways. Consider what you are. Consider your sins. But consider the salvation in Christ. And if you confess those sins to him, yes, all your sins shall be forgiven in him. All the wretched, vile things you've done shall be washed in him. You do not have to wipe your hands and come to the Father and come, or come to Christ, come to the Father through Christ. You do not have to uh, try and get better before you do that. No, confess those things now. And you shall be washed, you shall be cleansed, you shall be covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. For he saves his people from their sins. And he saves a people that cannot and does not do anything good. But really only does evil until he saves them. Only does vile things spiritually until he changes them. Christ saves these ones. And the line of the Savior will go through Jacob. And the fact that Jacob is a wretched, vile, terrible man, and we see this with this sibling, sibling rivalry, we see that God can bring about hope in such times of despair, not just despairing even for Rebecca, but also when it seems like Jacob is far gone, when it seems like he's a pretty terrible guy and there's no changing him. God can do that. God can change. God can work miracles. And he can work the miracle of taking someone's heart of stone, removing it, and putting in a heart of flesh that they might believe. God is mighty. God is able. And hopefully this passage shows us the amazing grace of our Lord to save sinners like us. Well, let's pray. Our great God, we are thankful for your so great salvation that is in Jesus Christ and for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. When we consider our remaining corruption and we consider our former ways, oh God, we are thankful for your predestinating grace. We know, God, it was, even with these ones, it was before they did anything good, before they were born, it was before, so they cannot say there were any works that they did. We're thankful, oh God, that the same is true for us, that you're the one who saves your people. We pray, oh God, we recognize your sovereignty, that we would not just be theoretical Calvinists, but practical Calvinists, that we'd be a people that prays, that we'd be a people that claims to your promises, claims to your word. We pray, oh God, you encourage our souls this day as we gather, as we gather to, as your people in various places. We pray, O oh God, that you continue to hedge us in and protect us and keep us. We know, O oh God, that these difficult times, what man means for evil, you truly mean for good. So these are things that are difficult, easy to say, but difficult to, to realize and experience. We pray, O oh God, you help us to learn these things. Help us to grow in faith during these trying and difficult times. We're thankful for your grace and for your mercy. So we pray, O oh God, you'd be glorified this day in all things. And we pray that you'd help us now and encourage our souls, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. Thank you.